All right, I'm turning this morning to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. And we're going to begin this morning in verse number 15 here in just a moment. 1 John chapter 2. We'll start in verse number 15. The Bible says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, if you will, go over with me to 1 John chapter 5 for just a moment before we get back to our text. 1 John chapter 5. Begin there in verse 1. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And every one that loveth him that begat loveth him also that is begotten of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not grievous. For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world and this is the victory that overcometh the world even our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world, but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ. Not by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit that beareth witness, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that bear record in heaven. The Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. And there are three that bear witness in earth. The Spirit the water, and the blood, and these three agree in one. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God, which he hath testified of his Son. He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. He that believeth not God hath made him a liar, because he believeth not the record that God gave of his Son. And this is the record that God hath given to us eternal life. This life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. This is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. And if we know that he hear us, whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of him. If any man see his brother sin, a sin, which is not unto death, he shall ask, and he shall give him life for them that sin not unto death. There is a sin unto death. I do not say that he shall pray for it. All unrighteousness is sin. There is a sin not unto death. We know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not, but he that is begotten of God keepeth himself, and that wicked one toucheth him not. And we know that we are of God, and the whole world lieth in wickedness. And we know that the Son of God is come, and hath given us an understanding, that we may know him that is true, and we are in him that is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. It was important to read 1 John 5 along with the context of 1 John 
chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, about this command to love not the world. We see here that as John has been writing and we've been learning about this doctrine of assurance over the previous three weeks, we've witnessed that John has continually affirmed his purpose of writing this book. Now, we might be careful when we say this, and we need to be careful, that we say that we've been given this book so that we know that we are saved. But the primary goal of John is not first and foremost that we're saved, but first and foremost that we sin not. Now, that's critical to understanding. Now, of course, he's not talking about sinless perfection. But we can get carried away with the reality of our assurance and knowing for sure and saying we know for sure and declaring we know for sure, but nothing changes with regard to our sin. We continue in the same sin that we always continued in. We continue to to uh, to stumble at the besetting sin that so easily besets us. And yet John says that even though we do sin, my goal is that you sin not, but if you do, we learned a couple weeks ago, you have an advocate. You have an advocate with the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. That advocate is also he who is your propitiation. He is the substitute. He is the one who took the place of you. We've been looking over the last few weeks at various tests, the tests that we can measure ourselves to know whether we are in Christ. And it's, a, it's been pictured as a relation to light or a relation to darkness. He's, he has spoken about how do we relate to Christians? Do we love the brethren or do we still hate them? And he made a very declarative statement by saying, if you, still, if you hate the brethren, you're still in the darkness and there's no light in you. He doesn't give any room for explanation. He says, if you hate the brethren, you are still in the dark. It is possible this morning to know a lot about God intellectually. It's possible for you to have a theological understanding. It's possible for you to be theologically trained and not know Christ as your Savior. The reality is, is that it is our reality, that it is Christ who is our assurance. Christ is the ground of our assurance. The proof that we know God has been shown in these tests. The proof that we know God is also in our desire to keep His commandments. God is known in and by His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. If I say I know God, then I must know Jesus Christ. To know God is to know Christ. To be joined with God is to abide in Christ. It is that that conformity that's taking place in our sanctification. The supreme commandment that is not only given here by John, but even Jesus as he was asked, the supreme commandment was, was to love thy neighbor as thyself. How we walk, how we live, proves whether or not we're in the light or we're still in darkness. Now, John has given us two warnings and he's given us two perils regarding this darkness. These are perils to our assurance. The first peril that we looked at over the last few weeks as John showed us the groundwork of his appeal to them was what they have known in Christ. 
Their appeal he made to them was in the categories of little children, young men, and fathers. But before he ever gets to love not the world, he's already warned them about worldliness. He's already warned them about loving walking in darkness. He's already warned them about loving their brethren. So when we get to verses 15, 16, and 17 and beyond, we see that he is not introducing a new concept. He's saying these things based upon what he's already declared to be so. Love is to not be misunderstood for what he means. In this context, love is love. In the context of the love for the brethren, the love for the light. So there is a peril that we have to understand. There is a danger. We are going to see this morning we're warned against the love of the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. True fellowship with God means that we have a love of the Father. We love God. It is not just a command to abstain from loving things that you should not love. It is impossible for you to love not the world if you do not love the Father. In other words, you can't just tell anybody on the street, hey, don't love the world. They have to have the love of the Father in them. They personally have to have a love for the Father. That's why we don't just simply call people to give up worldly things and then call it good. Because this love for the world is not going to be overcome by just simply laying down worldly objects and laying your eyes aside, if you will. It's all bound up in the love of the Father, not just the love the Father has for us, but the love that we have for Him. Fellowship with God means we have the love of the Father and He loves us, we love Him. To love the Father and for Him to love us means it makes us conscious of the dangers to our soul. The awareness that the love for the world is going to bring danger to my soul. The second peril that John mentions here is, and we will see it in a little while, the second peril as he talks about the fellowship is the spirit of Antichrist. The spirit of Antichrist is to deny that Jesus is the Christ, and it involves the denial of the Father and the Son. Any system, any doctrine, any theology that teaches that Jesus Christ is anything less than what the gospel and the word of God sets him forth to be is Antichrist. Any teaching that sets Christ aside moves him from the proper position. There's a lot of systems. There's a lot of theological t teaching that's going on in the world today. We read last week about being very careful uh, in, in uh, chapter number four. John said, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try them. Try the spirits whether they are of God because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. Period. It doesn't give room for exceptions. It doesn't say yes, but if, or here is an exception to that rule. Any 
Every spirit that confesses Christ is come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesses not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. It leaves no room for an exception. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even now already is it in the world. We have two great perils. We have the peril of the spirit of Antichrist that is battling against our assurance, but we also have the peril of understanding where is our love? Is our love truly of the Father and of the Son and of the Spirit, or do we truly have more love for the world? The church of God must be on continuous watch for false prophets and false spirits and you and I have an obligation to test every spirit to see if it is of God not everything that comes wrapped up in God is of God no matter what experts say no matter what your favorite theologian says if that does not confess that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. It is not of God, and I don't care who said it. Because the reality is, that's a peril to your assurance. The love of the world is often brought on because it's influenced by the human philosophy and the wisdom of the age. It is accurate to say that the desire of the world, the desire of the philosophy and wisdom of men, is to bring the church of the living God into bondage. In other words, the goal of the world is to bring you into bondage. The world will say, this will bring you freedom. Actually, what it's doing is it's bringing you into the bondage of the Antichrist and the anti-Christian system. So when he says, love not the world, he's not just talking about the things of the world. He's talking primarily about the world system. I've seen people go way too far and they say, you as a Christian cannot enjoy anything this world offers. That's not what he's saying. But it should not be our supreme love. It should not be our supreme desire. And we should have no love for the world system but yet we should have a love for the Father, for the Son, and the Spirit. We see in 1 John 2 at the end, and we'll see here in just a moment, he says, little children, abide in him. We haven't read it yet. So that at his coming, there will be a boldness and we will not be ashamed. So with all that as an introduction, and I know that's lengthy, but that's important to establish that. In verses 15 through 17, now these headings are long, and I wrote these out intentionally, and I worded them intentionally for my own understanding so I can convey these. But if you look with me at verses 15 through 17, we've already read 15. Look at verse 16. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. 
Now, we can see here that the things of the world, the creation of the world, the things God has made, it is not wrong to desire some of those things, nor is it wrong to possess those things if we are desiring and possessing those things for the purposes in which God intended them. That's the key. God created the world. God created things. God gave us things that we may use them for His glory. They are to be used by His grace and to His glory. But here's what this is teaching us. But believers must not seek or value those things for the purposes to which God never intended them to be used for. In other words, they should not be used to accomplish our sin. Remember, John's purpose was that they sin not. Remember all the way back in 1 John 1, he said, but if you sin, you have an advocate with the Father. So the world draws the heart. We're all drawn. You are not exempt from this. You cannot sit here today and say, I am not drawn by anything in the world. I'm not drawn by the, the, the glitz. I'm not drawn by the glamour of it. I'm not drawn by the riches of it. We're all drawn. The heart is drawn by its depravity. The more the love of the world prevails, the more our love for God declines. So the more you love the world for its unintended purposes, that God didn't give you these things in the world for those sinful purposes, the more you do that, the more your love for God will decline, and we might even say it decays. The things of the world can be divided, and that's what John is doing here. He divides the things of the world into three ruling powers of our heart. So the love not the world is the, is the principle, but then he breaks it down what it looks like. And he divides them into these three things. The first one he says is the lust of the flesh. It's a reference to the lust of the body. It's the desire for wrong, sinful desires of the heart. It's a sensual appetite of indulging things with the intention of inflaming your sensual pleasures. That's the only way I can define this. Now, there are things God has given within the boundaries of certain covenants and certain contracts. In the bonds of marriage, for example, there are things that are not sinful in a marriage that are sinful outside of marriage. But the lust of the flesh is to pursue the world with those desires, with the intent of inflaming those pleasures. I'll refrain, due to the audience that's here today, about going into much detail about that, but I don't have to tell any of you that society is running on inflaming sensual pleasures. It's the lust of the flesh. It's intentionally, the world system is intentionally trying to appeal to the wickedness of your heart that is still there. It's not a coincidence. It's not just, oh, I just happened to stumble upon this. It's intentional that you might be drawn away. The lust of the flesh. 
Often people put these two in the same category and they say the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes are the same. They're a bit different. The lust of the eyes, yes, we can lust upon things with our eyes, but the lust of the eyes is more with regard to the delight and the pleasure we find in things, possessions, riches. The lust of the eyes is primarily compared to the lust of covetousness. It is to have the eye that covets more and can never have enough. Now again, yes, the eyes can lead us to the lust of the flesh. We understand that. But there's these three inclinations of the heart. I want to draw you away into sensual pleasures and I want to draw you into sinful desires that you ground yourself in the possessions of this world. I want you to find your satisfaction in the riches of this world, not in the riches of Christ. That's an anti-Christ and anti-Christian position. The true believer does not find their satisfaction in riches. Now, we're often very quick to also say a Christian or a believer cannot be rich. The Bible does not say that. There have been men and women throughout history who temporally have had great possessions and great riches. Having riches does not make you a sinner, nor does it mean you acquired those things by sinful means, or that you are succumbing to the lust of the eyes. There are some people who God has given those riches to, who they've been able to use those for the glory of God. But he's finding and saying, your heart is going to be tempted to find its satisfaction in those possessions. That's why it's often said, again, not because it's sinful to have riches, but it's often said that it's easier for a poor person to trust in God than it is the rich man because the rich man will lean on his riches. He'll trust in those. He'll trust in those all the way up to the point of death. And then he'll realize those riches are not going to do anything for him. The third is the pride of life. Pride is based upon or is vanity. The pride of life is to crave the glorious life. It's to crave applause. It's to crave honor. Isn't it amazing how quickly the things of this world fade and die away? Isn't it amazing how quick somebody who was of such grandeur and such pomp and circumstance and such immense power suddenly dies and that power and that pomp and circumstance is gone? The love of God never passes away, the love of God never fails. Now, Lots of times when verses 15, 16, and 17 are preached from or taught, we always try to evade the force of what the passage is saying. We always try to say, well, uh, there's got to be some limitations on this. There has to be some exception made. Many people have said, well, you know, God gives, God gives some liberty, some freedom in here that we can be this much carnally minded and we can love the world this much. But the plain, simple meaning of these verses, you cannot mistake what he's saying here. 
We are supposed to have victory over the world. That's why it took us to 1 John chapter 5 and we read through that and we read through the entirety of it because he said, for whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. He even uses the word, and this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. We overcome the love of the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life by he who we have been born of. God has saved us. And he says, it's a hypothetical question. Who is he that overcometh the world? But he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. He who overcomes the world is he who believes Jesus is the Son of God. He who does not believe Jesus is the Son of God is an antichrist. These vanities, the pride of life, are so alluring to our corrupt nature that's still there. I've said this, and I've said this about my own heart. When I sin, and I think, and I do, and I'm drawn, I still don't fully comprehend how deceptively wicked my heart can be. When you sin... You have an advocate with the Father, but that's not a license to continue in it. I've caught myself loving the world, and so have you. I've caught myself falling prey to the lust of the flesh. I've caught myself falling prey to the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. I'd venture to say there's no one in this room who is ever fully exempt from that. That's how alluring the world system is. We cannot escape the world or obtain victory over the world without Jesus Christ. Look with me at verse 18. He goes on and he says, Little children, it is the last time. And as you have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now are there many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest. I want you to notice that. They went out that they might be made manifest or revealed that they were not all of us. But ye have an unction from the Holy One, and ye know all things. I have not written unto you because ye know not the truth, but because ye know it. Notice that. I have written unto you because ye know not, but because ye do know it. Or I write to you because you do know the truth. And that no lie is of the truth. Who is a liar? Makes no exceptions here. He that denieth that Jesus is the Christ. He is Antichrist that denieth the Father and the Son. Whosoever denieth the Son, the same hath not the Father. But he that acknowledges the Son hath the Father also. Every man is an Antichrist who denies the person or any of the offices of Christ. Every man or woman is an antichrist who denies the person or any of the offices of Christ. You see, you can name the name of Christ even in your sermon, 
even in your theological writing, and be an antichrist. It isn't just mentioning the name of Christ. It isn't just saying, I acknowledge there's Jesus. To deny any of his offices, to deny that Jesus Christ is the only mediator, 1 Timothy tells us, is antichrist. That means just because you hear the name Jesus Christ doesn't mean you're hearing a true spirit. That's why you have to try the spirit to see whether they be of God. The Antichrist denies the Son, and by denying the Son, but denying the Son, they also deny the Father. By denying the Son and the Father, you have no part in the salvation of God. You say that's an arrogant statement. That's Bible. To deny the Son is to deny the Father. That means you are not saved. You are not converted. It doesn't matter what kind of a life you're living. It doesn't matter what you've put off. It doesn't matter what you teach, what you preach. You preach to the largest church in the world. But if you deny Jesus Christ and his person, then you deny the Father, which means there can be no fellowship with God at all. Yet how easily are Christians being led astray by everything that sounds Christian, looks Christian, feels Christian, and you're not trying the Spirit. You're feeding your soul antichrist, and then at the same time you're saying, why is my assurance so poor? Because you're not guarding. You're not being careful. The spirit of antichrist. Some of you grew up in churches where all we have to do, you're just looking for one antichrist in the end times. That's not what the Bible teaches. There's the spirit of antichrist. It's already here. It's been here. This world is not here to glorify Christ. This Prophecy that John talks about, mentioning that there will be a time when seducers will rise. Now, here's the key we're often looking for seduction in the most obvious places. The most obvious place you're looking at is outside of the church. You realize that the greatest place for seduction to take place is inside the church inside that which says we are the church. So that when you see it, you'll believe it because it's in the church. It's happening all around us, folks. It's happening daily. Where everything is just, look, a moving of God. You try the spirits, you do a little research, you do a little background check, and suddenly you find out this is not a moving of God at all. This is Satan transforming himself into a minister of light. And there are Christians that are buying it hook, line, and sinker. And you're proclaiming it to be something that is not of God. You see, John writes, he says, I write to you because you know the truth. Which means that because you know the truth, you'll know a lie when you hear it. Again, what did he say in 1 John 2, verse 21? No lie is of the truth. No exceptions. 
So if someone says this is of Christ, but at the same time they're proclaiming a lie, it's not of God. Simple as that. But what if they're sincere? Sincerely wrong. Nowhere in Scripture does it say that sincerity is key. He says, try the spirits, test them, prove them. See if what they actually say and believe is true. See, John writes to people who know assurance. I emphasize when I was reading through 1 John 5 how many things he says we know, you may know, you can know. Nowhere is it led, or we led to believe that we're supposed to question our assurance. We're supposed to test everything. But the more you feed yourself the Antichrist world system, the more your assurance is going to decline. True believers, he uses the word unction. It's the same word that we get anointed. Again, that word is being thrown around today. Misapplied, misused, and Christians are buying it hook, line, and sinker. Anointed is to have an unction. It's, it's to have an understanding. It's the ability to know the truth. This anointing is not uh, the, the latest new fad that churches are gathering and grabbing onto at an alarming rate that suddenly now uh, we all have the ability to heal. We all have the ability to cast out demons. It's resurging. It's, it's coming back to the forefront. It's not of God. The sign gifts are now being put back to the front of the church and saying, if, you're, if your church doesn't practice the sign gifts, it's not, a, it's not a Bible church. That's a lie. The reality here is, is true believers have been given an unction. The unction comes from whom? From the Holy One. Ye know all things, verse 20, he says. He doesn't mean that you're an expert. He says you know the truth. You know spiritual things. True believers know when they hear a lie. Friends, I can't say this any more direct than what I'm saying it this morning, that the most hurtful lie that is spread throughout the church is being propagated through the church today are errors relating to the person of Jesus Christ. And if you'll listen, and if you'll pay attention to what's being said, you'll hear the error as soon as it comes out of their mouth. But you cannot feed on the world all week long. You can't feed the lust of the flesh, the lust of pride of life, the lust of the eyes, and then suddenly think, my assurance is strong. You're feeding anti-Christian world system, world philosophy to your soul. The unction from the Holy One is what's keeping you from buying into the delusion hook, line, and sinker. The Bible does say that there comes a day when God will send a delusion and man will believe a lie. People have wrestled with that verse for years, decades, centuries, saying, what does that mean? You know what it means? There's coming a day when God will send the delusion and there will be people that will believe a lie. Is God the author of sin? No. Is He the one sending the delusion? Yes, He is. Does He have the right to do that? He absolutely does. 
He has the absolute right. If a person hears the gospel over and over and over again and says, I don't want it, I don't want it, I don't want it, he has every right in the world to say, okay, you will never, ever, ever be brought to the truth. We often judge favorably a person's profession. But how often do we look at do they obey the word? Do they seek to live in union with the Lord? Oh, there'll be people who deny the Godhead of Christ. There are people who deny the Trinity. There are people who deny Christ and His person and His office, and they will say that they love God. And you know what they'll say? They'll say, we love God, you hate God, because you're calling us out. You're telling us we're wrong. That's what people who don't know the Lord do. When they hear the truth, they hate it. We don't hate the truth because we're not of the anti-Christian system. We should love the truth. Everything you hear should be viewed through the lens of what does the Bible say about what I'm hearing? Not what did the latest theologian tell me? Not what did my favorite preacher tell me? What does the Bible say? You have to be in the Word to know that. We should protest, not partially, not somewhat, but in totality against any Antichrist doctrine. So that when the Antichrist doctrine comes in, masquerading as unity, you don't fall for it. It's not going to go out there. It's going to come in these doors. There has been and there will be more who will come in that front door masquerading as believers in Jesus Christ who are nothing even close to it. Every one of you have been here at one point in time when it, something came in masquerading. God revealed it, took care of it. But we have to be on guard against it. Not everything that comes saying I'm of God is of God. Notice verse 24. Let that, let that therefore abide in you these teachings he's talking about, which ye have heard from the beginning. He says, I'm not teaching you anything new. If that which ye have heard from the beginning shall remain in you, ye also shall continue in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he hath promised us, even eternal life. These things, watch this, these things have I written unto you concerning them that seduce you. The truth of Christ abiding in us is the means to sever us from sin and it unites us to the Son of God. The truth of Christ is what abides in us. The indwelling of the Spirit is not meant for you to parade like some proud Christian, but to sever you from sin to sever your love for the world, to sever you from the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh. It's your union with Christ. Why do we put so much value on the gospel being proclaimed every single time we open the doors of this building? 
Because there's no greater truth in which we can proclaim. There's nothing greater we can, we can speak of. I mean, you're just not relevant. Your church is back, it's old. Old doctrines, old teachings. No. John says, you've known it from the beginning. Abide in those things. Again, Christians buy every new thing that comes out. And they say, well, my favorite preacher endorsed this, so it must be right, so I'm just going to move. Folks, do not move just because someone tells you to move. If I tell you to move, don't move unless you can try it and prove it and say, look, this is for the glory of God. Too many people are following people. They're following men. They're waiting for man to say, here's what you should do or here's what you can trust. Look, every minister of the gospel has a responsibility to stand up and tell you the truth, to preach the word of God to you, but you have got to study for yourself and show yourself approved. If you're buying anything, I'm preaching any single week and you're not testing it and you're not going home and you're not talking about it and you're not seeing if it's true, shame on you. You need to be doing that. There's no preacher who is going to tell you, don't check for yourself, just trust me. No preacher of the gospel does that. No, he says, you go home and you test it. And if it's wrong, you have an unction. You're going to know it's wrong. You're going to know. Now, that preacher may have said something unintentionally. Or he may have said something with intent. But the reality here is we put great gospel, we put great truth on the gospel because notice what he says, the promise of eternal life. It's the promise that God makes. The promise he makes is according to his greatness, according to his power and according to his goodness. It's according to his grace that eternal life has been promised to us. The Holy Spirit of God will never, ever lie to you. The indwelling spirit is not going to lie to you. He teaches us all things, not only in this present life, but in the life to come. Everything that is necessary to our knowledge of, of God in Christ and to the glory of the gospel is found in what the Holy Spirit says. If a man says simply to you, God told me, has no basis of Scripture. He just says, I was, I was doing something and God came to me and told me that ought to be a huge red flag. And you ought to stop right there and say, all right, right now I've got to presume that what I'm getting ready to hear is a lie. God is not audibly speaking to you that way. He's speaking to you through the Word. I've seen Christian after Christian march down a road and say, well, I have peace in this because God told me and the Word says exactly the opposite. And these are professing Christians. Again, their favorite preacher says, God told me, and they said, well, my favorite preacher said it, so it must be true. I'm telling you, you are bombarded with so much falsehood we don't even realize how much you're reading and seeing every single day. He said it on Twitter. It's true. He said it on Facebook. It's true. 
They said it on Instagram. It's true. This is what it is. Test it and see if it is. God's not going to tell you to do something contrary to His Word, no matter what it is. It's a new nature. The Spirit is not speaking to our old nature. The Spirit is speaking to our new nature, the nature that Paul talks about being a new, cre new creation in Christ. We ought to beware of holding the truth in unrighteousness. Don't treat God as, did God really say? It goes all the way back to the garden. When Satan was deceiving, what words did he use? Hath God really said? That's how subtle corruption enters in. Has he really said that? Does God really not want you to enjoy the things of the world? Are you sure he doesn't want you to have a little bit of sin? Is God really that big of a killjoy? You see, the reality is when we go and we finish this, he says, but the anointing which you have received of him abideth in you, and ye need not that any man teach you, but as the same anointing teacheth you of all things, and is truth, and is no lie, and even as it hath taught you, you shall abide in him. Now, he's not saying that this means you don't need to ever be taught. We're all supposed to be taught. And now, little children, abide in him that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If ye know that he is righteous, ye know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him. You see, God does permit these trials of Antichrist to come in. I don't fully understand this, and I may never fully understand it, but God even allows the seducers to sometimes enter into a church in order that the church will recognize the error. The church is like what's described as the threshing floor. The, the chafe must be blown away while the wheat remains. Any church is standing for the truth. There will be tares that will grow among the wheat. These anti-Christ, anti-Christian systems come in that they might be made manifest to us and further assure us that salvation is of the Lord. Nothing will reveal to us more clearly that our salvation, sanctification, and righteousness are the work of God than observing people who try to do that work themselves. So that when you see someone working and earning their salvation, it reveals to you and further assures that salvation is of the Lord. Again, salvation is of the Lord. I am what I am by the grace of God, Paul says. That phrase alone enlightens our understanding. To know the living God, to know the nature of fallen man, to know the spirit of Antichrist, to know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ in your life, to know the gospel, and to be able to discern false teachers. There are false teachers everywhere. They are not masquerading in the world. They're masquerading in pulpits all over this country and all over this world. Our assurance is bound and founded in Jesus Christ alone. He who says and denies Christ is not of God, period. But you know him. Amen.
Let's finish by singing the hymn on page 83.